Thanks be to God. Happy Sunday, everyone. My name is Justin, and I'm one of the ministers here at Sunnybrook. Thank you, brother. And we are closing our book study on Ephesians this week as we get ready to move to the Psalms um, next week and in the coming weeks. I hope that it has been a blessing to you, whether you've been um, participating live with us online or if this is your first time, uh, welcome to the end of the book. And we're excited to have you with us. Uh, You join us on an interesting Sunday and an interesting text, a text that has a lot of assumptions that I think the rest of the world does not assume actually would probably argue for the opposite. We are going to be looking at a text that believes that there is a real enemy with a powerful strategy to defeat us, but that we have everything we need to win. That there is a real enemy with a powerful strategy to defeat us, but that we have everything we need to, to win. You probably didn't miss the fact that this text believes there is a devil that there are rulers and authorities, cosmic powers of darkness, spiritual beings out there. That the physical world that we see, that we can measure, that we can try to understand more and more of, is not the only realm out there, but there is actually another dimension, another realm that we know as the spiritual realm. Many of us in here might believe that and agree with that, have no problems with that, and we're excited and willing to learn more about that. Some of us believe that, but we don't live according to that, and I believe that can be a pretty dangerous game. We're going to talk about why that is today. Some of us maybe believe it, but we believe it in a weird way. Our source material is not just the Bible, but it's actually like The Exorcist, The Blair Witch Project, and your 1967 Ouija board from your hipster parents. Okay, that's your source material. The only thing you know about like the demon realm is if you get possessed, your head starts spinning, your eyes go white, and stuff. This is gross. Okay? That's, what, that's all you know and assume about it. But I think there's probably a large majority, maybe not in this room, but outside of the walls of this room, who do not believe that there's a spiritual realm. Who believe that you are crazy, ignorant, uneducated, simple, if you believe that there are things like the devil or demons or some kind of spiritual realm. Um, Western culture would like to tell you, our modern sensibilities would like to tell us that there is a physical explanation for everything that has happened. There's some kind of mix of physiology and psychology and sociology that can explain everything. Sure, people who, from the past, who, they would never say this out loud, but stupid people from the past used to believe things like evil and demons. But, but now we know things. Now we understand germ theory. We don't have to say every time someone gets an infection, that's a demon. And now we know things about how the brain works. Now we know more about hormones and chemical imbalances, and therefore, we don't have to use silly things like demons or spirits or transcendent darkness and evil anymore. That there are only those things. Actually, we would probably say that things like racism and poverty and war, any type of internal brokenness can all be summed up by physical, natural explanations. Hans Hübner, a commentator on the book of Ephesians from Germany, says this, A belief in the devil has lost its plausibility. 
Whoever today feels threatened by the devil or believes in his fangs is probably himself in the fangs of a fanatical sect. There seems to be a bit of a, a, a gap. We can explain things physiologically. We can explain, explain things psychologically. We can explain things based on the culture around us and studying sociology. But Andrew Del Banco of Columbia University wrote a book a while back called The Death of Satan. He talks about the loss of being able to explain things with this concept of evil. He himself, a secular liberal, makes this all the more interesting. He says that there is this great gulf between the recognition of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. We have rejected the idea of transcendent evil. We don't like the word evil. It implies moral absolutes and value judgments. It becomes harder to label major evils with modern medical terms over and above the acknowledgement of transcendent evil. We have what we think we can explain, and then we have World War II. We have physiology, and then we have genocide. We have psychology, and then we have transcendent, undeniable evil. That's at least how the Bible talks about it. And some of you, maybe in here, that makes you really, really uncomfortable. The fact that in 2020, there can be somebody standing on a stage in a university town saying that there is something as silly and foolish as a devil, demons, or a spiritual realm. That is you. If you do not believe that there's a devil, I probably will not be able to intellectually convince you of that today. But let me just challenge you for the next few minutes that we have together to consider these things. That maybe... Okay, this is what Tim Keller says, a guy who's a lot smarter than I in a town full of skeptics in New York. He says these five things for you to consider. Number one, just consider the idea that it might be you that is the simplistic one by refusing to admit of the possibility of a spiritual realm or a devil and the multidimensionality of this universe. That actually you might be culturally narrow. That white westerns struggle with this idea, but most people for most of time around the world have not, have no problem believing in a spiritual realm. Some of you maybe don't believe that there's a devil or demons, but you believe in there's a, a God. You believe that there's this good personal spiritual being, but you're unwilling to admit that there's a bad being out there. Or maybe you need to consider this, that you will not be able to understand or defeat the darkness in your own heart, in your family, in your city, in the world, unless you are willing to at least acknowledge the possibility <clears throat> that evil exists. A couple of things on the devil from a biblical perspective. I do not believe that the devil is eternal. I only believe there's one being that's eternal. That's the triune God. I do not believe that the devil is all-powerful. I do not believe that the devil actually is at all places and all time, that he's omnipresent, that he um, has that attribute that only God possesses. Actually, he had a beginning. God created, before he created humanity, he created another race called the angelic beings. And they were created, like us, with a free will. And a section of them chose to use that free will to rebel against God. And there were some that stayed who we would say are angels and some that left and we would say are demons and they exist in this other realm this spiritual realm that the devil though he does have 
power. It is a limited power that has been given to him by God for a certain amount of time. Why would he do that? I don't know. There are some questions in this whole thing that we are not privy to. Why would God allow this being to continue to exist at all? Fun thing to talk about. We'll probably talk about it on our next Consider This podcast that we'd love for you to turn into, but that's not our purpose here today. The devil has a limited power for a limited time. He can't make a good person bad. He can only make a flawed person worse through life. See Genesis chapter 3. Did he force them to eat or did he just plant seeds of doubt and lies? See the book of Job. Did he force Job to deny God? No, he couldn't. He could only do what God allowed him to do. See Jesus in the wilderness. One of the first things he did in the Gospels. Did the devil have any power to force Jesus to say or do anything? No. But he could plant seeds. He could cause him to to doubt, to distrust, to disbelieve. I do believe that the devil has been around longer than us, has limited though dangerous power, and is the master of his craft. He's the originator and master of disloyalty, deception, and wickedness. He knows the physical world, the spiritual world, our mind and our heart better than anyone in here. He's a master of his craft. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 11 says that we are not to be unaware of the devil's devices because those that are unaware, those are un- who are unwilling to acknowledge the devil and his schemes are going to be taken advantage of. There is a real enemy and he has a powerful strategy to defeat us. What are those strategies? I believe that the devil's goal is to keep us from glorifying our creator. The devil's goal is to stunt whatever sanctification might happen in your life through the Holy Spirit. That is his dream and his joy, to deceive, destroy. That's what his name means, diabolos, diabolical. It means deceiver. It means accuser. It means wicked one, hated one. He is the one who has been accusing us, deceiving us, planting seeds of doubt from the very beginning. He is a seducer and a slanderer and a traitor. A famous book that you may or may not have read by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. And he summarizes it poetically, beautifully, in two ways. The devil wants us to either overestimate him or underestimate him. In the overestimation, we have an unhealthy fascination with the devil and his ways. You think that's crazy? Yeah, I would never do that. Okay? Go study how quickly... Wicca, pagan religions, and the New Age religions are growing, not just in the world, but in the United States of America. Percentage-wise, one of the fastest-growing religions. That's crazy. Ouija boards in 1967 outsold Monopoly. They sold two million of those things because there was this unhealthy fascination with the spiritual before we got our modern sensibilities and denied it altogether. The devil would love for us to overestimate his power and to live in constant fear of him or to underestimate his power and, living in the United States, living in the Western culture, deny that he exists altogether. He would love to do that. We assume he's just ready to pounce and destroy us, to jump on our back, to destroy the ship, when all the while he just needs to turn the rudder a little bit, get you going off the path in a different direction. 
overestimate to underestimate. A guy by the name of Thomas Brooks, a 17th century Puritan, wrote a book called The Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And he said there's really two categories that Satan loves to use to try to get us to fall. He uses temptation and he uses accusation. Temptation and accusation. In temptation, we're we're challenged, we're deceived to do something we know we shouldn't do because we've overestimated ourselves. Or maybe we've lifted too high the love of God. We haven't recognized enough the holiness of God. Here are some of the devices he uses in the realm of temptation. He shows us the bait, but he hides the hook. Have you ever wondered how fishing works? How do they keep continuing to catch fish? It's because there's little fish that bigger fish want to eat, but they don't see the hook, and then they get caught, and then they get eaten on Tuesday night at the DBM Fish Fry. You should come. Um, Show the bait, hide the hook. We see the short-term pleasure, and he hides the long-term misery. Have you been there? Ooh, that sounds fun. Ooh, I don't think, uh, uh, they, no one will probably find out. I'm going to do that. that. That feels great. And then you get to pay the price long term. Sometimes he uses the device of rationalizing sin as a virtue. I'm not greedy, I'm just thrifty. I am not nosy, I'm just concerned. I am not an alcoholic, I'm just very sociable. He loves to hide sin as a virtue. He loves to show you the sins of others. Oh, have you seen this person? I mean, I look great compared to them. They are, ooh, gross. But me, I'm only a little bit gross. That's, how, that's one of the things he likes to do. He loves us to overstress the mercy of God. Just do it. God will forgive you. Romans chapter 6. If we can sin, God's grace will abound. No big deal. He wants us to be bitter over suffering. God, don't you know how good I am, how hard I work for you? I don't deserve this suffering. Or maybe flip that around. Man, things have been really tough. I can use this vice just for a little bit. I won't do it for a long time, but I'm tired. Lastly, he shows Christians how bad people have great lives. Might as well do it. Just look at them. Or on the side of accusation, we view ourselves too low. We hate ourselves, and so we don't do the things that we should. We overemphasize the holiness of God, and we all too quickly forget the love of God. How could God love a guy like me? I know what I think, and I know God knows what I think. I know what I feel. I know what I've said. I know what I've done. There is no way I deserve God to do that for me. He accuses us. He causes us to look more at our own sin than at our Savior. He causes us to obsess over past sins that cause damage that cannot be undone. God could never use me. I grew up in this town. There's no way I could tell people about Jesus in this town. People know what I've done. We have trouble going through. Whatever trouble we're going through is punishment for those past sins. You know why your family member died, right? You know why your child was born with that defect, right? You know why you didn't get that house or that promotion, right? Yeah, look at your past. You'll never be good enough. You'll never move past that. Or maybe we believe the lie of the, the better Christians don't have struggles. Like, real Christians don't have doubts. They don't feel depressed. They don't have anxiety. I wonder if I'm a Christian at all. 
I wonder if the Holy Spirit is work at me, work in me at all. Brooks says this in his book that he wrote just before he died. Satan, being fallen from light to darkness, from felicity to misery, from heaven to hell, from angel to a devil, is so full of malice and envy that he will leave no means unattempted, whereby he may make all others eternally miserable with himself. He, being shut out of heaven and shut up under the chains of darkness till the judgment of the great day, makes use of all his power and skill to bring all the sons, of daughter, sons and daughters of men into the same condition in condemnation with himself. He has recognized his position, his temporary power for a temporary time, and all he wants to do is drag you and I down into the mud with him. He goes on to say, whatever sin the heart of man is most prone to, that the devil will help forward. If David be proud of his people, Satan will provoke him to number them, that he may be yet prouder. If Peter is fearful, Satan will nudge him to rebuke and deny Jesus. If Judas is self-seeking, Satan will quickly enter into his heart and make him betray his master for money. If Ananias will lie for advantage, Satan will fill his heart that he may lie to the Holy Spirit. Satan loves to sail with the wind and suit the temptations of men. If they be in prosperity, Satan will tempt them to deny the need for God. If they are in adversity, he will tempt them to distrust God. If they are large and strong, to find security in their physical body rather than in the strength of God. If they are timid, to fear. If bold, to presume. From the power, malice, and skill of Satan do proceed all the soul-killing plots, devices, strategies, and methods in the world. At one moment, he will refrain from tempting that we may think ourselves secure and neglect our watch. But then at another time, he will seem to flee that we may become proud of our victory. One time he may fix our eyes more on the sins of others than on our own that we may be puffed up. And another time he may fix our eyes on the blessings of others that we may become overwhelmed. There is an enemy and he has a powerful strategy to defeat us. But we have been given everything we need to win. The all-powerful God who created both us and our enemy has given us the power the insight to counter the devil's strategies, a plan of attack, and the equipment necessary to defeat our enemy. So look in your scriptures at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, finally be strengthened. Uh, this word is like there, there's something outside that we are passively receiving, and that is the strength from the Lord, from Jesus. By his vast strength, his mighty power, it's two words that mean the same thing. And Paul's trying to communicate one thing. You need to be made strong. You can't make yourself strong because that's how God made it to be. You have been made to depend on God. And so if you want to be strong, if you want to stand against the difficult times you face, you need to be strengthened by Jesus, by Jesus, with his power. Look with me a couple chapters back at Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 19. Paul prays two or three times in this 
letter. And during this first prayer, he's listing a few things. And one of the things that Paul wants the Ephesian people to be aware of is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those who believe. According to the mighty work of his strength. Paul loves to use things early in the letter that he's going to trickle throughout the letter. And then end the letter with this theme of power and how it's transferred from God to us. And the limited power that the devil has is something we need to pay attention to. Listen to this in verse 20. God exercised this immeasurable, great, mighty power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heavens. Far above every ruler and authority, that's how Paul talks about like the demons, the spiritual realm, the power and dominion and every title given not only in this age but the one to come. He subjected everything under his feet and appointed him head over everything for the church. Jesus has displayed the power of God by first willingly dying in our place for our sins and then being raised up from the dead, and not just raised up from the dead of a physical resurrection, but then ascended to the right hand of God to rule all created order, both the physical universe and the spiritual realm, and there is nothing as powerful as him. Anything that has power has only a limited temporary power that has been given by and through him. That is the power that he, Paul says we now have. Look at chapter 2 verse 6. He, God, also raised us up. He raised Jesus and he showed his power through him and he also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in us. When you put your undying faith in Jesus, this amazing thing happens. And you are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And you no longer become a minion who's been deceived and blinded and hardened by the devil and his allies. But you become enlightened, freed, empowered to live in the way you were created to live. That is the power that we have access to, that God has given to us. And let us never forget 1 John 3, 8, that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Did he accomplish that or not? Do you believe that Jesus accomplished what he set out to do, to destroy the works of the devil? Well, sure, Justin, but 1 Peter 5, 8 says that the devil is still roaming around like a lion ready to destroy us. I believe what Peter would agree with me on, and especially if you read Revelation chapter 20, that that Peter text, that idea that there's a devil, that he's roaming around, is that he's roaming around in a cage, The only power he has is a limited power and a temporary power. And the way he gets power is by you reaching your hand in and messing with that lion. The only power the devil has over you is the power you allow him to have. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. We are to give the devil no opportunity. Because he's seeking an opportunity to get in, use his arrows, his schemes, his strategies, his methods to accuse you and to tempt you, to prevent you from glorifying God and to prevent you from being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. 
And when we are angry with people, when we are bitter with people, when we withhold forgiveness from people, that gives the devil a foothold. When we go to something else for truth, that gives the devil a foothold. When we doubt our when we doubt the salvation we have in Christ, that gives the devil a foothold. That's what he does. That's who he is. But Jesus defeated the devil, and he is living now in a cage, and the only power he has is the power that you give him. We not only are strengthened, as verse 10 says, but we put on the armor. Look at verse 11 of chapter 6. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle, listen to this, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual beings or forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. Chapter 5, verse 16 says, these are the evil days. We are now in a battle, and your battle isn't just with the people who live across the street from you. Actually, when he says our struggle, our wrestling match, isn't with flesh and blood, he's not saying you won't have physical temptations in your body, desires of the flesh which you need to destroy. He's saying that the enemy is not your neighbor. The enemy isn't the flesh and blood that you see. It's not the other political party. It's not the person who has a different color skin than you. It's not the person who lives in a different location than you. You have been deceived. You have been veiled. Your heart has been hardened to believe those things, but actually believe all those, but not beneath all those thoughts, behind all those evil desires is a being that exists, a devil that exists, spiritual beings that exist, an evil, a transcendent evil that has taken root in us and that Jesus alone can uproot and kick out. Poverty, injustice, racism, any brokenness that we see in the world. Yes, there are physical dimensions to this. There are psychological dimensions to this. There are sociological dimensions to this. But do not be deceived that behind all of it, there is a spiritual dimension to this as well. So we put on the armor of God. We have been given every spiritual blessings in the heavens in Christ. That's what First Ephesians 1, 3 says. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ Jesus. There is a real enemy, and he has a powerful strategy, but you have been given everything you need to win. So be strengthened by Jesus. Put on the armor of God. You are to put on this belt of truth. The foundation from which everything else comes is the truth, the truth of who he is and what he has done. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You are to put on this breastplate of righteousness. You are to always remember your standing before God as being declared right, though you don't deserve it, but because of what Christ has done, you've been declared righteous before him. And now we are to walk and to live in this righteousness that he has. We are to put on a shield of faith. We are to put on the marching shoes of gospel proclamation. We're on a helmet of salvation. All of these things, these defensive weapons that we have to fight against the flaming arrows of the evil one. 
who wants to take any opportunity that you'll give him to defeat you. And then we see these other weapons, this, this sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then not only that, but I believe Paul continues the illustration in verse 18, that we do have the Word of God, that we do have the Spirit of God, that we do have the people of God, but the way we engage the spiritual realm is through prayer. We have the Word to guide us to be our foundation. And then we speak And when we speak, the Lord listens. The all-powerful creator of the universe listens and acts. He has used us. He has made us his ambassadors, his warriors, his battle people. And when we pray, things happen. That is amazing, and I don't think we believe it. Because if we did, we would pray. And if we did, we would pray pretty amazing things. Paul is in prison in chains And he asks not to be released, but that he would be given the message of this mysterious gospel made known to us by Jesus at the right time. He prays that he will have the boldness to speak it as he should, that when the opportunity arises, he'll say it to that warrior, to that prison guard, to that emperor. Be strengthened. Put on the armor so that we can stand firm. As we live in the time between Jesus' defeat of the enemy at the cross and Jesus' final removal of that enemy upon his return, we stand firm against that hostile foe, knowing that we have been given everything that we need in order to win. That when we put on the whole armor of God, as the whole people of God, we can face every evil attack in every situation. That's the text. There's a real enemy with a real powerful strategy. And when we put on the whole armor of God as the whole people of God, we can defeat that enemy in each and every situation. I want to leave you with Romans chapter 8 before we participate in the Lord's Supper together. In light of that enemy, in light of his schemes, think of this text. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He didn't even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He will not also grant us everything. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Who's the accuser? Who's the deceiver? God is the one who justifies He is the one who makes us righteous, and the accuser has no power over us. Who is the one who can condemn us? Can the devil condemn you? Christ is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes on our behalf. Remember these prayers? Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. John chapter 17, verse 15. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth in the spiritual realm as it is here in the physical realm. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus believed it. Jesus prayed for us and against it. He prayed in John 17 that we would be protected from the evil one. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, any difficulty that we might face, 
It's written, because of you, we are being put out to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. It seems like they're winning, Lord. It looks and it feels a lot like he's winning, Lord. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and conquered us by dying on a cross. For I am persuaded that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor demons, or rulers, nor things present, nor the things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We fight by putting on the strength of Jesus, the armor that God has given us, and then we are ready to stand and when you know that there's an enemy and you know his strategies and you know the power that you have and the weapons that you have we can win we can win because Jesus spilled blood on our behalf and so each week we gather together as the body of Christ to reaffirm what he has done so take this cup and drink And take this bread which represents his flesh that he put on. That he willingly laid down. That God raised up. And that now sits at the right hand of God. And now, let us worship well.